So we all want to be part of a success story. Whether it's an athletic competition or a business venture, we all want to win. We want to come in first place. If we enter into a talent contest, uh, we try to practice our routine to get it just right. Uh, no one wants Simon Cowell to rip their performance uh, to shreds, whether it's on America's Got Talent or whatever other program. No one wants to come in second place. Have you ever heard this expression? It's, I've got a little t-shirt on the screen for you. Second place is the first loser. And really make people feel wonderful with that. We live in a success-driven society. We want to win. We want to succeed. And in churchianity, there are similar tendencies. Which church has the largest attendance, the most baptisms, the biggest budgets, the list goes on and on. I remember summer reading that I had in school, and it was like torture, reading great gimmicks on how to get bigger offerings by making sure that you have people stand during the offering. Make sure you don't have them holding a hymnal, because if they're holding a hymnal, they don't have a hand accessible to reach into their pocket to give you money. Oh, yeah, yeah. Make sure that the song is upbeat so that they're happy to give. Gimmick after gimmick after gimmick. This tendency reflects the human craving to be successful or to have more. You know, you can follow all of the formulas for ministry success and come up depressed and defeated and broken. When ministry success is dependent upon men, the pressure is too much to bear. It's a reality. It is a battle that all of us face in one stage of life or another to want to succeed at something, to put all this intense pressure on ourselves. And uh, basically, if we uh, allow that to continue, we will crumble underneath that pressure. This morning, as we look at this passage in Romans 15, God offers us freedom from unsustainable burdens like trying to save people. God delivers us from the burden of being the salvation for someone else. Instead of trying to be someone's solution or a solution to everyone's problems, Paul expresses confidence that God has an accomplishment that has been done through Christ that can change the lives of many. Let's take a look, please, at Romans 15, beginning in verse 14. God's Word says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, 
by the power of the Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. These are precious truths from God's Word. Encouragement for our souls that God is not done saving people. He is the authority. He is the author. He is the Redeemer through Christ. In this passage, we'll notice four aspects of Paul's mindset about ministry. So the main teaching of the book of Romans has has come to a conclusion. That doesn't mean that there's no teaching in this section, but the main teaching has come to a conclusion at the end of chapter 15 and verse 13. He has uh, some wonderful greetings and information that he provides to the church of Rome about the ministry model and mindset that he has, as well as his future plans, and then some sayonaras, some, some goodbyes to the church there, all of which are vitally important to us, and we're going to spend some time looking at them. This week, we're going to notice that Paul discusses the rationale for his ministry, and next week, we'll see his plan to go to Spain to continue to spread the gospel. Paul, in some ways, in this section, is defending his lengthy series of instructions to the church. Like, if you think about this letter, it's one of his longer letters, right? What other letter rivals it? Well, 1 Corinthians has 16 chapters. 2 Corinthians has 13. And then the rest of them are much smaller. So we have a, 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 a tremendous amount of information that he has conveyed in the book of Romans. And so in some ways, he's anticipating the potential for some people to say, why do you keep on going on and on as if we're dopes? And that he addresses starting in verse 14 by letting him, them know that he has confidence that they are in fact believers. And so the first mindset of his ministry we'll see in verse 14 is Paul's confidence in the believer's salvation. Look there with me, please. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. He says, I am satisfied. The concept there is, I'm persuaded. I'm persuaded that you are a group, a church, filled with believers. I'm persuaded that you know Christ as Savior. I'm persuaded that you've heard the Gospel, have believed the Gospel, and God has changed your life. I'm persuaded that you're believers. You're full of goodness, he says. That the concept of goodness is generosity or kindness. Charity is another way to say it. This word goodness is one of the fruits, or this concept of goodness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced that you have demonstrated that the Spirit dwells in you and produces fruit in you. You're a generous, charitable group. God has changed you and made you possess His goodness. You're also filled with all knowledge. Well, that's an interesting statement. If you just said you're filled with knowledge, that's one thing. But to say you're filled with all knowledge, it's like, you know everything. 
I don't think he's being sarcastic. I just think he's speaking hyperbolically. He's letting them know, listen, I know that you know the Gospel. I understand that you, you comprehend these things. John said a similar thing in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 20 when he said, but you have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge or you all have knowledge. He's told the, 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 the church that he was ministering to there that same thing. that They, they knew. They, they know the information. Not only are they filled with goodness and filled with knowledge, they're also able to instruct one another. You're not, you're not um, inept, unable. This is an essential element of our lives. And this is an essential element of the Christian life is to be able to minister to one another, to, to really bring the Gospel to bear Monday through Saturday in addition to what we do together on Sundays. To come alongside one another, to encourage and challenge one another with the truth. To be able to speak into one another's lives. There are so many hardships that we face in this life. Physical hardships where our bodies are breaking down. That can be really discouraging when, you're, when you get to the point in life where your body just hurts one day after the next. You know, for a, for a week of pain, it's kind of like, alright, yeah, whatever. For a month of pain, yeah, Whatever. But there are people that I know, that you know, brothers and sisters in Christ, that are in chronic pain day after day without any hope in this life of things changing. Their bodies are weary. And it's wearying to their souls. We are surrounded by people that are in financial distress. Whether to the, of their own poor choices, or circumstances that have happened to them. Financially, they're just in great distress, difficulty. We're surrounded with people like this. We're surrounded with people that have social problems. Their, Their husband can't stand them. Or their wife can't stand them. Or their children have just turned a deaf ear to them continuously. Neighbors that are combative with them. Co-workers that can't stand them. We're, we're, we're surrounded with people that are in the midst of physical, financial, and social dilemmas. And then there's the inner turmoil that takes place. Those long nights without sleep. Your mind is churning and churning and churning. Weary. We're, we're surrounded by weary saints and weary unbelievers. And you know, you and I need to be able to point one another to our loving, faithful Savior. He is the only hope and the only solace that never changes. There are lots of good things in this life. Things we enjoy. Going to the beach. Having a hamburger. Having a steak. Last night we had some short ribs. They were delicious. It was wonderful. Being with your spouse. Being with your kids. Those are, there, there can be some wonderful things in this life. But you know this. Everything changes. People die. They're not going to be there forever. But there's someone you know that no matter what happens, no matter what you face, no matter what the turbulence is, He never changes and he'll never leave you and he'll never forsake you 
we have this to offer one another in the midst of a life that's filled with good things, but many trials and turmoils and difficulties. This call for us to instruct one another and help one another is not just for the super saints, right? In so much of churchianity, it's like you've got the the hierarchy that does all this work and they do all the ministering and then you've got the peons that receive all of the ministry. That is not the biblical model. The biblical model is one another. It's believer instructing believer, believer helping believer, believer engaging with believer to point one another to the one that doesn't change. God has instructed you that you might instruct others. And this group of believers at Rome, they, they had demonstrated God's saving work in their lives that they demonstrated goodness and they demonstrated knowledge and the ability to point one another to Christ. We all need to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul speaks of these qualities in believers and then he he speaks of the fact that this has come as a result of God's work through the Gospel. God does this. He's the one that brings about the the change in my life and the change in your life that we might have something of hope to offer to one another. Listen to these passages of Scripture. As we sow the Gospel, God uses that in an amazing way to transform people's lives. I can't transform anyone's life. I can't even transform my own life. But God can and God does through the distribution of the good news that He has provided to us. Listen to these passages. Isaiah 55.11 So shall My Word be that goes out of My mouth. It shall not return to Me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I Sent it. Jesus said the same thing when He was giving the parable of the sower. He said the sower goes out to seed. Some falls on the, the hard path. Some falls on the weedy path. Some falls on the stony path. But some falls on good soil. And this is what happens. Other seed fell on good soil and it produced grain. Some a hundredfold. Some sixty. And some thirty. God's Word works. It does. Because God is the author of it. And he has a plan and purpose for it. Paul talked about this to the Colossian believers. He talked about the power and the fruitfulness of the Gospel. Listen to these words. He said, "...because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before..." Where did you hear of it? "...in the Word of the truth, which is what? The Gospel, which has come to you, as indeed it does in the whole world." And what is it doing? It is bearing fruit and it is increasing. Who's increasing? God is causing His Gospel to cause an increase in people to come to know Christ and in the fruit that comes with it. Fruit like being full of goodness. Filled with knowledge. And the ability to instruct one another like our passage talks about. You can see the handiwork of the Gospel in the life of the Thessalonian church. Take a look there at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 just for a moment. We're going to come right back to Romans. But take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This passage is so informative about the pathway of the Gospel and how God uses the Gospel to transform lives. What you'll notice in this passage when we read it is how God sent the Gospel through the apostles 
to the church of Thessalonica, and they, they were redeemed because the Gospel came with power. And they were transformed. They became a testimony to believers. They, they helped one another. And then their ministry reached outside of the glorious buildings. right Outside of the gatherings. Out into the world. And their testimony of Christ reached unbelievers so that people saw, hey, that guy used to do this. His life was filled with following after the same pagan things that I was following after. He used to worship these gods and now he's been changed. And now he follows after this other god. And he has some kind of an expectation that this god is going to come back. Listen, listen to what the, how the passage reads with that in mind. Verse 5. Our Gospel came to you not only in power, excuse me, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the Word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the Word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth, what does it say? Everywhere. So that we need not to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their lives had been changed through the Gospel because this is what God does. This is what God does. This is why we dispense the Gospel. On Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, in the church, in our homes, in the marketplace, wherever we go. We have so much to offer. Because we're not offering ourselves. We're offering Him. God has performed His work of salvation through the Gospel in the lives of the Roman believers. Head back there to to Romans 15. Paul was expressing his confidence in that reality. So he answers a question that he anticipates from them. Since we know all of this, why are you writing such a long letter on these things? And so we move to the next part of this paragraph, which is Paul's concern for continuing in the Gospel. Paul's concern for continuing in the Gospel. In verse 14, he spoke of this confidence of their salvation. In verses 15 and 16, he says, yeah, but I had some things to say. (laughs) I had a lot of things to say. Look what he says in verse 15. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. God graced me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the Gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. While they had all that they needed as a church, Paul was entrusted with a ministry of grace to help believers not to sway 
wander away from the gospel. For while God changes people through the gospel, we tend to mess it up. We tend to come up with new ways, new thoughts, new programs. This will really get the job done. But God God tells us not to move off of what He has done. He says there are some points that He has spoken boldly about, reminding them about the truths. Because He had been given a ministry of grace. You can read about that ministry of grace in Ephesians chapter 3 where He says that He's been entrusted with this, a stewardship, and it was to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ. In verse 16, He says He's been made a minister. Now a lot of times when you see minister in, in the text, it comes from the Greek word diakonos. It's like deacon. But here he uses a different Greek term. It's leitorgos, which has the idea of being kind of involving in liturgy. The, 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 the priestly worship is what he says. And what is that priestly worship? How does one articulate a priestly worship? It's by proclaiming the gospel of God. The priestly service of the Gospel of God. So now, what does a priest do? He would present the people to God. And, more importantly, he would present God to the people. Who is your God? What is He like? What has He accomplished? What has He provided? A priest tells people what God has done for them so that then upon the proclamation of God's salvation through Christ, He then says, so Lord, here I am. I gave them the Gospel. Here they are. (laughs) I can't make them sanctified. I can't make them saved. Only You can do that. We proclaim the Gospel and we wait for the Lord to do His work. The priestly service of the Gospel of God. What is the Gospel of God? It's what we're constantly trying to tell people, right? God has been proclaiming from the beginning His love for us. He's been proving His love for His people. Think about this passage. It's it's familiar, but Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is, this is God presenting His love to us in Christ. The Bible says in John 3.16, very familiar, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The, the Gospel is teaching us of our sin and God's provision for our sin. Now, if you're anything like me, I'm sorry for you if you are, you are regularly confronted with your own struggles and sin. They come before you day in and day out in new and creative ways or with well-worn paths. Our sinful nature is constantly on display, it, we're confronted by it. But I have good news for you. This, this is what the Gospel is about. is to deal with that daily 
struggle with your sin because Jesus Christ has dealt definitively with your sin. He has paid for every ounce of your sin. And He is delivering you from that sin. Paul was anxious to preach the Gospel to people that had never heard about Jesus Christ. But he was also anxious to preach the Gospel to a group of people like you and me who already know the Gospel because we need it just as much as our neighbor. He told us this right at the beginning of the letter. Listen to what he says in Romans 1.15. So, I am eager to preach the Gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why is this? Why would he be anxious to preach the Gospel to believers? Because there is a tendency for us to drift to other things, to find new and creative ways to satisfy ourselves and to try to gain God's approval. But Paul constantly warned churches again and again against anything that would divert us and to divert our attention away from the sufficiency of God in the Gospel. Take a look with me at the book of Galatians for just a moment. Galatians chapter 1. He had a ministry of warning. You've heard about ministries of warning, right? They want to talk about every different thing. They're watchdogs. We're going to guard the church against this. We're going to guard the church against this. We're going to guard it against this. All manner of things. I really don't want to get into it. Paul was a watchdog for the church too. Guarding us against following useless stuff. Guarding us against diverting our attention away from the Gospel that changes us because of the sufficiency found uh, through God in Christ. Take a look at Galatians chapter 1. Look at how passionate Paul is about guarding the church against deviations from the Gospel. He says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different Gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the Gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a Gospel contrary to the one we have preached to you, let him be... What does he say? Accursed. He's pretty upset. He's pretty upset about the possibility that we would find some other message to preach than the simple message of God for you through Christ. He goes on to say, as I have said it before, so now I say it again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I seeking to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Our focus needs to be on proclaiming God's message. He says it beautifully in 2 Corinthians. You'll see it on the, on the boards to my left and right. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you a chaste virgin to Christ. I want to present you. I want to, I want to present you as those that are set aside for God. He said, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the, what does it say? Simplicity that is in Christ. 
oh, I have some really deep, deep stuff to talk to you about this morning. No, it's the same message, friends. God's for you. He's done what is needed for you in Christ. It brings us unto salvation, sustains us in salvation, and God, what He has started in you, He is going to bring to completion at the day of Christ. This is the Gospel. He saved us, He's saving us, and He will save us. Praise God. You know, the, the author of Hebrews does the same thing. Because we have a tendency, we used to sing an old hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. <laughs> you recognized it. But you recognize the, the reality of it. So easy to get caught up in any old thing aside from what God has done for me. It's easy. It comes like second nature to us. So we need to be reminded again and again of who God is, what God has accomplished, and what God has offered and is offering to us. And so the author of Hebrews does the same thing. He's convincing his readers that there is nowhere else to go. Why would you look for a better Savior than Jesus? There's no one else who can bring you to God. He's the only one. And so I want to, to walk just for a moment through a couple of passages in the book of Hebrews. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 2 to, to begin with. This is Paul's ministry. It's the ministry of the the writers of Scripture. Peter does the same thing. I, I don't want to grieve you, but I want to remind you because you need this. For you, it is safe for me to remind you of these same things. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest who can help us in temptation. Verse 17, it says, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he, who's the he? Jesus, your great high priest, he is able to help those who are being right now, tempted. You know Psalm 46 that it talks about God being a very present help in trouble? There He is. There He is in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. He suffered. He was tempted. It pained Him. He learned and became as the second, as the human, as the high priest, He became a faithful high priest, and He is able to help you in the midst of your difficulties. Take a look at chapter 4 now. Again, talking about Jesus' high priestly ministry, He is sympathetic. He's a sympathetic high priest. And to Him, we can bring our honest, bold, free speech and find help. Look at verse 14-16 through 16 of chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So he sympathizes with our weaknesses or our sinfulness, even though he has not sinned. So the response in verse 16 is, let us then with confidence, that's boldness or freedom of speech, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And what is the result? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help. When? In the time of need. Right in the nick of time. Right now. Right now. This is who Jesus is. He's not just Jesus who saved you. He's Jesus who is saving you. Saving you from what? From you. <laughs> He's saving you from you. You're a disaster. But I'm not just talking about you. This guy's a disaster. But in Christ, I have everything. And He's for me. And He's with me. And you know, He gives us further good news in chapter 7. Take a look. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 24. Again, speaking of Jesus' high priestly ministry, it says He holds His priesthood permanently because He continues forever. Because He's the second person of the triune God, right? Godhead. He's, he's the Son of God. This high priest who became man and became a faithful and great, uh, great high priest, He is living forever. Look at verse 25. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. He's always praying for us. This is such an encouragement. You can see more about Jesus' prayer. You can read it in John 17 how He prayed for the disciples and then those the disciples that would come after Him. You can see how He... Uh, in, in Romans chapter 8, is constantly interceding for us. While accusations come, He prays for us. And remember this, Jesus as God always receives the answer yes. Here's Simon Peter. I'll never, I'll never forsake you. Peter, before the rooster crows two times, you will deny me Three times. Satan has tried to separate you from your faith. But remember this, Peter. I have prayed for you. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. In other words, Jesus in His high priestly prayers for us, sustaining us, is always going to get what He's asking for. So the author of Hebrews is building the same case that Paul makes, which is, don't go Ahead, don't go backwards. Don't go to the right. Don't go to the left. You have what you need. It's found in Christ. He is a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. And so He makes a call to them in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. He's faithful. He's going to do it. So what do we bring to the table? Not much. Nothing good. What does He bring to the table? Everything He promised. Amen. This is why we keep pointing one another to Him. You're in the midst of despair. I have one thing to offer you. I can't promise your pain in this life will end. 
I can't promise you that your problem will be resolved. And okay, your wife will now love you. Your child will stop rebelling from you. I can't make any of those promises. What I can promise is, in the midst of that, God is for you. Jesus is with you. He's not going to abandon you. He's got you. He's got you. This is what we can do for one another. So Paul says, hey, I know you guys are all believers and you're wondering why I'm writing such a lengthy letter. I have a ministry and it's to remind you that this things, these things that I'm reminding you of, all these points of the Gospel that point you back to Christ, you need them and you can't turn from them. You need to hear them and hear them again. This is not wasted words. These are necessary words. Fruit-filled ministry is proclaiming Christ day in and day out to ourselves, to our family, to one another, to our neighbors. Head back to Romans 15 for just a moment. Paul's message is don't look elsewhere. You have everything you need in Christ. The next few verses will just take a few moments for us to consider. I do have to let you know that verse 17 has some words in it that are not in the original. It will help us to understand it better. Um, as we look at the third aspect of Paul's mindset of ministry, is it's Paul's dependence on God for fruitful ministry. Look at verse 17. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. That is a little bit misleading. Here's what it literally says in the Greek. It'll be on the screen. I, not in Greek words, because people get mad at me. I have therefore... The boasting in Christ Jesus, the things pertaining to God. Let that sit on you for a moment. I have, therefore, the reason for boasting. The reason for my boasting is Christ Jesus. These are the things that pertain to God. So I wrote in the margin of my. Bible, look at what Christ has done. Verse 17 essentially says, look at what Christ has done. Paul is dependent upon God. So in verse 18, he says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the Gospel. There's only one person to boast in. It's Christ. You can see, just flash before your eyes on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Read it. Think about it. In verses 18 and 19 of our passage, all the fruitfulness from the Preaching of the Gospel is a result of God's good hand. The basis of our preaching is Jesus Christ. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose for us. The application of salvation is accomplished only as God opens a person's eyes and gives them new life. We just tell them. We just tell them and depend on God. It's all we can do. In Paul's testimony here, he speaks of God doing powerful, authenticating works, signs and wonders through the power of the Holy Spirit. As a result of God's powerful demonstration, Paul accomplished his mission in that region. 
from Jerusalem to Illyricum. He says, people came to the obedience of faith. What does that mean? The Gospel call is this. Come to me. The Gospel call is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The Gospel call is repent and believe the Gospel. The good news. This is the Gospel call. In 2 Thessalonians 1 and in 1 Peter chapter 4, there's a statement that says that people disobeyed the Gospel. What does that mean? Well, they did really bad things. That's not what it means. It means God said come, and they said no thanks. It's, the Gospel says, come to Me, all who are weary, all who are weak, all who are burdened. I will give you rest. He says come, and they said no. Well, the opposite of that is when someone hears about God's kindness in sending Jesus Christ to save sinners and they realize that they're one of those sinners. And they call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and they're saved. That is the obedience of faith. God says, come. And you say, yeah, where do, you, where do I sign up? <laughs> God says call. Call and say what? Lord, you're you're right. Having fulfilled His mission from Jerusalem to Illyricum, Paul wants to enter into a new region. And he tells them those plans in verses 20 and 21. So Paul's plans to keep the Gospel reaching outward. Look at verses 20 and 21. And thus I make it my ambition to do what? To preach something else? No, to preach the Gospel. Not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of Him will see. And those who have never heard will understand. So he's, next week we're going to talk about this as he heads toward Spain and kind of is soliciting some support for that mission trip. Um, he's going to go and do the same thing. He's going to proclaim the Gospel. For now, the implication of this is uh, that we want to gather is to keep looking for opportunities to share God's saving work. Keep telling people of God's love. Keep telling people that there is hope found in Christ. There's not a lot of hope in this world, as you know. You and I can, by word, and by the way that we, we live our lives, show that God is worthy of a person's trust. See, yes, Man, He saved me. Why wouldn't I follow after Him? Why wouldn't I tell people about Him? He's trustworthy. We can, by word and life, show people that He's trustworthy. Look for opportunities in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home, in the shopping mall, at the grocery store. You know, we have a community summer fest coming up on August 20th. I said October earlier because I'm dumb. On August 20th, it's going to be here at the church. It might be a really good entryway into a conversation for you with someone to say, hey, the church that I go to is having this summer fest. Come on by, uh, and we'll tell you a little bit about what we're about, and then it may open the door for you to share the gospel with them. But always remember this real, fruitful ministry, ministry that changes people's eternal destiny and the lives that they are living right now is always as we point them to God's goodness 
Because God's goodness leads us to repentance. The way I'm headed, the way I'm living, this is unsatisfying. This, this isn't getting the job done. When I see God's goodness, I say, this isn't the right thing. This isn't helping. He does. He is helpful. He provides real life and real hope. And so we point people to Him for His glory. Paul lets us know, yeah, I've written all these words. I know you're believers. I know you know. You need to be sharpened to focus on the Gospel. And then you need to go with the Gospel in the church, in your home, and to your neighbor for God's glory. Let's pray together. Father, You know what's going on in all of our hearts. You know what You want to do with these moments of worshiping You and Your Word. I pray for each believer here that we would not sway from the hope found in Christ to look for joy and peace outside of You. I pray for any unbeliever among us in their distress and in their difficulties. We pray that You would help them to see that You provide everlasting hope that while the circumstances of this life may be hard, You will not abandon us in the midst of that hardship. Help us to trust You. I pray for any unbeliever among us that they would come to know Your faithfulness and Your saving work through Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.